Welcome to the world of the consortium, which uses nanotech implants to turn people into hyperlogical beings. The young woman recorder is one of these. She's assigned with her neural implant to high-tech record keeping. But when she's cut off from that technology, can she rediscover humanity before the consortium discovers her? That's the plot of Recorder by Kathy McCrum, whose sequel Aberration releases this month. And today, Kathy arrives in the Lorehaven studio to explore these heavy questions with a light touch. Flee into the safe studios of Fantastical Truth, safe from all domineering governments. This is the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven publisher, the pop culture parent author, and I only vote for a pro-human government. Thank you very much. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I can totally relate to this fear of losing your technology. In 2008, we were in Hurricane Ike and we lost TV, radio, internet. All we had was a landline phone. No electricity. And that is a scary thing. And you really discover how vulnerable you are as a human. And this is episode 138. What if the evil government forced you to act like an android? And we will be talking about Aberration with author Kathy McCrum. Aberration is book two of the Children of the Consortium series. That's a science fiction series from Enclave Publishing, which sets up the perfect early transition to our cover sponsor for this episode, Oasis Family Media. The sponsorship is for Aberration by Kathy McCrum. I love it when a plan comes together. Here's that description. Freedom awaits, but the consortium is watching. When rogue drones threaten citizens and the ship's crew falls ill, the recorder answers their call for help once again drawing scrutiny from the consortium. With no other option and under an elder's overbearing watch, she returns to Palas Station where she nearly lost her life in the hope of finding something, anything, to save her friends and countless others. Her friends are determined to keep her safe, but for the recorder, saving others comes first no matter the cost. Book two of the Children of the Consortium series, Aberration, releases Tuesday, November 15. If you're listening to this episode on release day, again, great timing. It releases today. You can get it in ebook, hardcover, and audio CD from Amazon. The audiobook is also available. Lorehaven actually reviewed book one recorder that released last year, and we said Kathy McCrum handles heavy subjects with a light touch, keeping the novel from grimness. Recorder is a creative and engaging novel that will appeal to a broad audience. Get more information in our show notes for episode 138 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Kathy McCrum is author of the Children of the Consortium science fiction series. She graduated from Biola University with a degree in English literature and a love for stories. She and her husband, whom she met while writing letters to soldiers, have five children and currently live within the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. While writing is one of her favorite things to do, she also enjoys reading long hikes and long naps, gluten-free brownies and raspberries, and crocheting while watching science fiction movies with friends and family. Most of her imaginary friends are nice people, including shuttle pilots Nate and Alec, who are flying her into the studio at this very moment. Kathy, welcome to the Lorehaven Studios. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Kathy, welcome. How did you first discover biblical faith and fantastical imagination? Which is another way of asking, when did you discover Aslan and accept him to be your personal lion and savior? That actually has to do with story, but not science fiction or fantasy. I was at a VBS 
and they were, you know, how they did the the missionary stories and stuff. So they were telling the story about some little boy in India and this tiger's going to get him. And then he, you know, didn't get eaten by the tiger. And that convinced me. I was probably five, so that's the logic that goes with that. Shortly after that, though, my sister had an accident and scalded herself, and my parents were really worried and everything. And that night, I went to bed. When I went to bed, I was crying, and I was so worried about her. And I just prayed that that Jesus would heal her. Next morning, not not a red mark, not a not a blister, nothing. Completely, her skin was completely, you know, fine. And that just clinched it. And since then, God's showed up in so many different ways that um it's really it, 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 he's always in the background he's always there i always know sometimes i forget and um allow my uh, fears and concerns to take over but it was through that when i was in grade school i discovered um the narnia books my dad was reading them out loud oh, and nice. then i stole them all and then he couldn't read them out loud because I stole them all and I read them under my covers with a flashlight <laughs> and uh, proceeded to write a bunch of, you know, third grade level fan fictions of Narnia and then discovered The Hobbit. And um, then I bet that was over. It's just The Hobbit from then on. Can you remember your first introduction to science fiction? Probably Star Blazers. Do you guys remember that? Oh, what I don't is think Star I've Blazers? Ever seen that. No. Um, it's it it's a I guess I guess Japanese anime, and they have to save the world. And so I was hooked. And my dad sometimes come I'd come an update every night about what happened, and I won't ruin it for everything. But yeah, so watched it recently. It's they've done a reboot. It's pretty cool, but um, not necessarily something I'm really comfortable with my youngest watching. And then Star Wars. So it says, uh, just a quick look up, it's an English adaptation of its Japanese counterpart, Space Battleship Yamato. So Steven, yes. this is your department. Does this sound familiar to you? Not a bit. You no, know, it's strange of the many anime, well, the few anime truly that my wife and I have enjoyed. Science fiction mostly eludes us, except for some sci-fi influences in other anime series. Although when we are browsing on Crunchyroll, which is one of the few streaming subscriptions that we've actually kept at present, because uh, it doesn't seem to have been uh, taken over by the enemy. We see a lot of science fiction stuff that just, for some reason, we keep passing by. I don't know why. We we tend to go for more of the fantasy anime. I do note, uh, Kathy, about your backstory, that uh, before you uh, got to meet the lion, capital L, uh, you actually met a tiger, which that's interesting. You put a spin on the usual Christian author testimony there. But I like to point out for, that for any skeptic out there listening uh, who thinks that uh, Kathy was scared into the kingdom by some kind of threat, <laughs> or some kind of health, wealth, and prosperity thing, Kathy, it's obvious to me that your faith has proven genuine and you've not been eaten by any tigers at this time. No, correct? no, ti no tigers so far. Okay. Um, so she must it, have the gift. She she has the faith. Yeah, it was it was more a matter of like, wow, God was there for that kid. He can be there for me too. And then right after that with my sister. So you did see a healing, which is great when God does uh, override uh, the natural law to do that. It's almost one could say fantastical. And I don't know exactly my thoughts on whether we can engineer God to do that kind of thing, but I do believe that he does do that. And which is one reason why I love fantasy so much. And yet I also like healing through science. So we've got a place here at Lorehaven for both uh, fantasy fandom and science fiction fandom. You seem to have discovered both genres uh, growing up uh, and yet also biblical faith uh, preceding both of these. So 
I'm curious then uh, moving into chapter one of our discussion here, uh, and as you were moving from being a fan to being a creator of these stories, what ideas and images formed your story world for the Children of the Consortium series, uh, starting with Recorder last year uh, and now with book two, Aberration, just coming out? Well, I've, I've always wanted to write. I've always written things, sometimes just jotting them down. And about 25 years ago, I was driving home from work and a sentence popped into my head and I, I recited it to myself the whole way home because I was afraid I'd forget it. And that is now the beginning of Kylie's chapter in Recorder. I stopped writing when my kids were growing up and it's just, I was too busy. I didn't have time to do it. And someone challenged me, just write, you know, you have five minutes, write five minutes, do it. I'm like, fine, fine. It's like, got my dander up and fine, I'll do that. But the thing that, that a lot of things in, in Recorder came from discussions that I had with friends about news and the worth of a human being independent of what they can or cannot achieve. There's so many people who have a lot to give, but they, they give in a different way and a different section and a different, different type of feedback. Moving it from that, I think i had had this dream and I woke up and I, I wrote the dream down and, um, one of my friends, I shared the first paragraphs. It's, it's what's now chapter two of Recorder. I shared the first paragraphs with her and she's like, well, where's the rest of it? So I set out to write a 15,000 word story, kind of overshot that just a tad, but it was the beauty of nature and how God speaks to us through that, which is very odd because of course, most of the books take place inside a human made environment. But the fact that God's there we can't always see what he's doing, but he's always he's always there. He's never leaving us alone. And everything that we perceive as bad, everything that, whether it's good or bad, all those things can work together for good. All those things can be used to, to strengthen hope, to strengthen faith. We just have to keep our eyes open and look for them. Uh, amen to that. Uh, you mentioned that uh, most of the story is set inside a man-made environment, and yet some of the themes you were describing could lend themselves just as easily to a traditional fantasy story. Uh, why do you think this story uh, took the form of a science fiction project set in a futuristic world uh, instead of a, a fantasy journey? Because that's how they showed up. I mean, <laughs> it's, I wrote down that dream, and it was the first line that I wrote for the story was, the moon's moon was clear and bright the first time I saw the sky, which has been shifted and changed to something else. But that right there caught the longing for something bigger, the sense of wonder that I wanted to have. When I went on and wrote, I wrote these stories and I, I wrote the first chapter and the people were themselves. I mean, Nathaniel Timmons was Nathaniel Timmons, Venetia Jordan was herself, Alexander Spanos was himself, Dubois was just as irritable as, as she can sometimes be. And there was three quarter, just watching. I realized when I got through the first bit, it was, I don't think she spoke the, in my first draft. I don't think she spoke for the first 15 pages. And then I realized at that point, she was just observing. She was just watching. And why was she watching? Why was she observing? So I discovered it as I went. But I think that one of the things that that strikes me about science fiction is that we live in a constructed world. 
yes, there's nature. Yes, there's beauty. Yes, we can see the sky. But most of us do spend our time in a room on a phone, on a computer, at least here in North America. You know, most of us live in an artificial environment. But that artificial environment is very real. And it also has those seeds of hope and the prospect of beauty. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is there a particular technology that you're, you're fascinated by that you think is an expression of the glory of God in some way? Obviously, a little more indirect since it would be a creation of man rather than just a direct creation of God. But is there a, a, a type of technology that you connect with? Maybe it's music, maybe it's, it's light, uh, maybe it's um, visual stories or audio stories. Do you ever like interact with something technological and feel some kind of glimpse of God's glory through that? Probably mostly music, but I would say that the biggest thing that I see as a technology is, is actually books. Books are a huge technology. That was a huge yeah. advancement when, when people started, you know, writing things down and printing things and saving the information. And then when we started printing and saving stories, even when we're telling stories, that's, Again, it's an it's an artificial construct, so to speak, but at the same time, it's it's a reflection of God and His creativity. When He made man in His image, He gave us that little bit of creativity. It doesn't show up. Creativity in stories doesn't show up the same way in everybody. Some people it's drawing, some people it's music, some people it's baking, some people it's crocheting, some people it's woodwork, some people it's actually electronics. I mean, if you think about the basic things that we have, like phones. I mean, there's a huge scope of creativity there. And that's, I think, a, a God-given talent that he imbued to people. And going back to the idea of, of not everyone being able to give and participate in the same way. One of my friends has children who are uh, low-functioning on, on the autism spectrum. And they paint. Now, is this going to win you know, some major award? No. But it's joy. It's it's the ability to create. It's their expression. Making a mud pie as a kid. All of those acts of creativity that I think they're all different types. I mean, you could go back like pottery's technology, woodwork is technology. Cars are a technology that's a magic beyond me. Those might as well be in fantasy as far as I'm concerned, how the inner workings of vehicles go. <laughs> I think I'm I'm definitely on the same page as you, because when you look back in Exodus, uh, there's this guy named Bezalel and it says God placed in him all kinds of skills. Like it, it's the first person I believe where it says he was filled with the Holy spirit and he was you know, given these abilities for all kinds of artistic design, uh, to make the tabernacle. I think it's a fascinating passage where we see that God had the idea for the tabernacle. He communicated that idea in a way that people could understand. And then he gave people the, the abilities and, and the skills and the desire to build that. And then they were able to get all the materials and, and put it together in a coherent way, in a beautiful way. Um, so it wasn't just a functional creation. It was a beautiful creation. And that all came from the mind of God. I mean, even just... The fact that human beings are from the mind of God and from created by his words. And so I, I look at everything that we create you know, today and, and in the past as just another expression of God's own creativity. 
Speaking of God's creativity, another creative gift that our uh, God has given us is Feats of Athleticism, which perfectly sets up our second sponsor for this episode, Mountain Brook Fire with the Chase by Bradley Caffey. Coincidentally enough, he is our next guest uh, on the other side of the Thanksgiving break. You can look forward to hearing from him on Tuesday, November 29. This novel starts with Win the Chase, Be the Hero, or Die Trying. Every year, the 12 alliances of the World Coalition gather to compete in the chase. The prize? A chance to pass exactly one new law. Willis and Perrin are opposites. One is a pedigreed top trainee, the other a struggling leader on a team set up for failure. But when a racer from the outside world upends everything they knew, Willis and Perrin find themselves racing together with the peaceful World Coalition hot on their tail. Visit the links in the show notes to find your copy of The Chase by Bradley Caffey. It's available in ebook and paperback and Amazon. There's some other bookstore links you can find there in our show notes for episode 138 or go to our lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors page. So whether it's a new dystopian story uh, like a Bradley Caffey or for that matter, uh, the dystopian overlapping Children of the Consortium series, People have been exploring these abuses of science, these abuses of gifts from athleticism to technology. And Kathy, there are plenty of themes like that in both Recorder and Aberration, and then presumably Book 3 as well, which we will ask about in just a moment here. Second question then, how does your story explore these themes of dystopian doom, where you've got this uh, future government, this future movement uh, that is kind of using people in ways that uh, seem to weaken the idea of human flourishing. Uh, you've got this uh, implant going on. You've got this neural interlink for Recorder. Uh, how does your story explore these themes of dystopia? I think one of the biggest things about dystopia is that it's at someone else's expense. The powers that be are set out that, you know, they might have had good goals to begin with. In the Children of the Consortium series, they certainly did. They were creating utopia. They were creating a place that would be safe and wouldn't have religious interference. They even have a ban on on cursing. So, Oh, so it's good and wholesome. Okay, It's a so. good and wholesome place. <laughs> and they're trying to create a place where society is safe. But when they're creating the place that society is safe, they're overrunning other people's... I'll use the term rights. I don't feel like that's quite the right term, but, you know, loosely loosely interpreted they they are not aware of the value of the people that they're running over so the people that are members of the consortium you have you know, the novices the recorders the elders the eldest they were all rejected by society and rather than being thrown away they're being useful they're being they're they're helping they're serving society at the cost of their own individuality at the cost of freedom and nobody notices it's just the way things are. So you just keep going with the way things are and you don't question it. One of the f reasons that people are probably fascinated with dystopias, and we have so many of them, is because we see these little inclinations in any society, whether it's you know feudal Europe monarchy or some vast regime somewhere. But there's these little elements where we don't care about the other people. And even if we don't say specifically these are the problems even if we don't parse it quite that way we know intuitively we know that that's not quite right and i get think it goes back to that bit that paul wrote in in 
things, Romans, about we know God puts a little bit of that in our hearts so that we can figure that out and just doesn't set right. If you go way back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, the people that were there, his Gilgamesh's citizens, they didn't like what he was doing. What he was doing was wrong. And so they cried out for help. And I think that in a way, writing dystopian is a lot like that. It's like we see something that's not quite right, and we're pointing it out, hopefully to um, improve it, hopefully to find a way to overcome it. It would be really nice if the general, you know, sometimes, sometimes like I get memes and jokes, people send them to me, where it's like, it would be nice if the government would stop taking dystopian books as a plot for a good way to improve the future. Um, 1984 was not an instruction manual. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I think that that's, that's a big part of it for my book. I think a lot of it is just the fact that we forget the value of each individual person. We forget, I don't agree with them, or I don't like that, or they're not able to do this, or I don't like their philosophy. And it becomes a way of putting someone in a box and saying other instead of looking at the people and saying we, especially as Christians, we can't sit here and say them, 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 when the reason that we're here is to be light for the world. And that's light for each other and light for people who don't yet, haven't yet found God, haven't yet discovered the lion, so to speak. Yeah. I really like that approach, Kathy, that you're, you're taking a very personal approach to dystopia and how it forms. It, it forms in every person's heart that ignores the, the plight of others that are getting crushed by society or even just by the uh, taking people for granted, just the, the personal interactions. That's a very bottom-up approach, I guess you could say, to dystopia. I, I tend to think from the top down of like what kind of government would oppress people or what kind of system or corptocracy would create a totalitarian system. But last year, I read this book by Rod Dreher called Live Not By Lies. And he talks about a coming system of soft totalitarianism, that it's a a totalitarian system that you may not see coming and that it kind of sneaks up on you. Ever since I've read that, I've thought about that, that, you know, tyranny can take a lot of forms and and it can, it can come in through ways that are are kind of dressed up nice. People in uh, recent years have made a big fuss about how, you know, we've talked about technology, but when when we look at how the technology is mass produced. <laughs> so I like that your approach is, is coming at it from this, uh, this other angle of just looking at how does a tyranny keep going? Well, it's because every person just ignores it. And like how you said it, that's just the way things are. And I, I think that's such a scary statement because it, it, I think we can all relate to that. We've all said that to ourselves like, Oh, well, why did, you know, why is this happening? Or why is it that way? Well, that's just how it always is. That's just how the world is. And we sort of accept those things as, as commonplace when that's not how the world should be or, or that society should be. Kathy, it sounds like your world has a lot more nuance than the previous uh, straight up dystopian novels that Zach and I explored in our last episode, 137, uh, that being the classics Brave New World and 1984, which show two very different ways that humankind could arrive at dystopia. Uh, The more fake utopianism of Aldous Huxley in Brave New World uh, or the straight up uh, fascist uh, boot stamping on the human face uh, version uh, that is Big Brother from George Orwell's 1984. 
Uh, Zach and I had a play fight about that because uh, I'm convinced that if our society is to steer headlong into at least the prequel for one book or the other, uh, we are probably at this point more apt uh, to choose Brave New World because the residents of the world state in that novel seem to generally like the system they've set up for themselves. Uh, absolute uh, sexual, physical freedom, or so you would say, uh, contraceptives, artificial families, artificial music, artificial religion, everything is synthetic and artificial. And I, I see the consumerism and the false religions that seem to drive us in that direction now. Uh, that seems also to me to be a bit more realistic just because it is more nuanced. It's a little bit more in the direction of, well, this is just the way things are. And that's what people say now. Uh, and yet I see, at least in the descriptions of the children in the consortium and, and what I read of it, like I mentioned, a lot more nuance. It seems that this could be the way that humans end up uh, simply by virtue of volunteering for it. Uh, we were even talking before the show about how to describe the antagonists of the story world. Is it as simple as just an evil government? No, it's a little bit more adjunct. It's a little bit more legal. And you can't just say that, oh, someone has put a chip in a person and then turned them into this artificial being. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than that, is it not? Yeah, I'll, I'll admit, I'm, I'm a discovery writer um, for the most part, which is why sequels are really hard because I kind of know where they're going and I have to actually make the people go there and they don't want to cooperate. But most of my characters come into my mind as themselves. So I have an advantage in that, that they're already, they already seem like people to me. And I think it's a matter of keeping it as people and people interacting but I would in no way take to have the hubris to say, oh, yeah, I'm as nuanced as that. Because, you know, what? Those are like classics. So, um, but I, I do think that the foundation of it is the ability for humans to, to see where they are and to, and to accept it and not want to change. Because change is really hard. Change is difficult. Change is scary. And it's much easier to just go with the flow and keep going, whether that's in a personal kind of way with these are my character flaws, I get impatient, I snap at my kids, I, you know, whatever, I don't like doing X, Y, and Z. As long as it's not taxes, the IRS doesn't like that. Well, you mentioned earlier that people will just uh, continue on and not change. And I, I think that that thesis has been supported most clearly with the past uh, election day in the United States, but like you, uh, I won't go there. I'm not, yeah, I wouldn't compare any uh, newer dystopians to the, the classics. What I mean is that there are two different ways, at least two general different ways people can arrive at what could be called dystopian or, or a government that has undesirable policy that treats people as less than human or somehow holds back uh, their flourishing. Uh, you've got this obviously evil, you know, big brother spying on you from the telescreens type government. Or you've got this happy, gentle, you know, uh, soft flowing line, you know, gentle pastel cartoon illustration manual uh, government. Uh, and I'm guessing that now the type of institutions that infantilize human beings are probably a little bit closer to reality, which is why I find that just a little bit scarier. And which is why I think we need more stories that can explore that, uh, not from the perspective of just world building and cold steel and spies in the corners and things like that. Uh, but that more human perspective, uh, science fiction, especially is I think often unfairly described, uh, certainly by a bunch of internet memes 
as being you know all about the mechanical parts and the technologies and the rivets and all of that it's hugo weaving in sunglasses that means it's science fiction versus hugo weaving in a uh, silver crown and that means it's fantasy all those differences really are not so clear cut because fantasy and science fiction can overlap uh, like different kinds of dystopians uh, one or the other can be more realistic for exploring human creations uh, versus humans themselves but there's but there's plenty of overlap for our third sponsorship we are fighting not a bad or questionable government but monsters in the form of allegory an allegory like pilgrim's progress reloaded a remixed version by author david umstadt Pilgrim's Progress is a classic story of redemption, allegory, and theological poignance that has profoundly impacted millions of readers over three centuries and changed the landscape of English literature forever. It's also a story with a total lack of robots, space marines, or talking platypuses. So we fixed that. You're welcome. Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded is a narrative podcast you can listen to on the podcast app you're using right now. Just search for Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded to start listening for free. You can find a few starter links in our show notes for 138. That's this episode or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. So, Kathy, we've had book one recorder came out last year, 2021. Uh, book two aberration has just released on uh, release day of this episode, Tuesday, November 15th, right before Thanksgiving. So you've got plenty to be thankful for. Uh, what's next though, for your fantastical creative journey, you've got at least one more children of the consortium book uh, to release, uh, to finish this trilogy. Uh, and then what do you think lies ahead for you? Well, I am still writing book three. As I said, I, I have a discovery writer. And since I know where I'm going, I know how it ends. I've always known how it ends. As soon as I got to, I think chapter 12 of writing recorder, which was supposed to be only 15,000 words, as I said, I knew how it ended and I wrote down the ending. I just have to get my people to cooperate and get there and they keep going off script. They're just doing these things without permission. And of course, they're smarter than I am. So they're writing a better story than I had planned. Yeah, so I'm getting through that. And um, after that, I don't know, I have a couple of stories in my head some of which are science fiction, some of which are not. After that, I have I have so many stories in my head. I'm sure that none of the other authors that you talk to ever say anything like that. It's, I'm so unique that way. No one ever says anything <laughs> like that. But um, I have a story that's like a, it's like an adventure dystopian nightmare sci-fi. And then I have um, a couple of YA fantasies in my head which would be an interesting change because a very different voice very different narrators it'd be really fun to do a gas lamp fantasy except that it have all the problems of historical fiction and and ants and fantasy all at the same time i have uh, some short stories that i'm putting out for anthologies and putting out uh, submitting to anthologies this year so that'll be interesting but um right now i just working on book three and um I do have, I do. Okay, I'm going to say it. I have a bee in my bonnet right now. I just want Pride and Prejudice with dinosaurs. I just do. <laughs> I just think that that would be super cool. It's, I, I probably don't have the time to finish that, but that would just be cool with dinosaurs. I mean, really, dinosaurs. Right. Well, because we had what, Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, and I think there is a Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yeah, uh, but I, dinosaurs. I think there's several. The dinosaurs I mean, would be very different. That, yes. that would be, yeah. So. Mr. Darcy, you know, rides in on a on a velociraptor and proposes or something. Yeah, well, actually, it's it's more like um, 
well, no, I won't, I won't say it just on the off <laughs> chance that I actually get around to it. Um, there's a line in the, uh, one of the reviews of recorder that says for recorders, emotional attachments are to be avoided. There's nothing more dangerous for a recorder than a friend. I'm curious about that theme of friendship, a world that's set up to discourage friendship and, and attachments for some people. Do you think that's a theme that's going to show up in other books that you write? Probably because in our society right now, a lot of people feel very isolated, very alone. It's difficult especially after the global experience with the quarantine, where we're all trapped in our own little bubbles and then breaking out of that bubble again to establish relationships and to reconnect with either nature or other people. In almost everything I've written, there's an aspect of doing the right thing, yes, but that there is a degree of family connection that we're missing. And even in, on, in our society today, our society is very nomadic and we you know, move from one place to another and we move away from family. And then the connections with our, our friends become so vital because otherwise we're all alone, which is one of the beauties of being um, in the family of God, where we have that kinship with each other. We have that adoption into uh, Christ's family. And I think that probably will leak out because it's a lot of where my heart is. Having been a Navy brat and moving, because I was, my dad was in the Navy, but it was very difficult to establish friendships when we moved from one place to another. And so that tight binding of finding someone with whom you can connect to throw a non-spec reference in, Anne Shirley and Diana Barry from Anne Green Gables, there are friends that stick closer to a brother and not just, not just the Holy Spirit and Jesus, but like he leaves us here in family and community for a reason. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a very hot topic right now because even before the pandemic, I read study after study of the loneliness epidemic that's happening in the U S and d- different ways that affects different age groups, but it's a, it's a health crisis. You know, it's yes. not just, Oh, people are lonely and they're sad. It is seriously detrimental to people's health. Um, they found that men, men without close friendships die much younger than other men. So it's very crucial for your physical health as well as your mental health, which you know now there's a, a big focus too on mental health. And so I think that's going to be a theme that really resonates with a lot of readers because uh, whether or not we can picture ourselves in a cybernetic, you know, nanotech uh, dystopia, I think we can all picture ourselves in a interpersonal dystopia where as that review said it's dangerous to have friends and and it's discouraged and you're kept away from people that really captures what covid was like for so many people it, it's dangerous to be in person with people it's dangerous to see my loved ones and um i i don't think that that sentiment has totally gone away even though we are in a new phase now and you know 2 years and change later i i think a lot of people still have that mentality because of so many other things going on in the world. And, you know, a lot of people have called it a cold civil war that's happening. Of course, there's a global cold world war three that could be happening. And so I think this idea of uh, feeling that threat, feeling that sense of dread towards other people, but needing those connections, I, I think is a tension. A lot of people are living in and are going to be living in for a while. 
I'll second that. Uh, it may be dangerous temporarily to be in close contact with other people, but it's a trade-off. How much more dangerous is it not to be in close contact with other people? God has made us to need one another. He said in the Garden of Eden, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, he made him a helper uh, fitting for Adam. They have kids. They fill the earth and steward its resources like they're supposed to. Zach, you even mentioned uh, Bezalel earlier. Uh, art and creative gifts are one way that God uh, gifts to us to help build that community. And that's why I'm glad that we have the opportunity to share books like we're doing here at Lorehaven to help build that community, whether it's the website, the podcast, or the Lorehaven Guild uh, exclusive server on Discord. Uh, we don't just want to sit in a room all by ourselves all the time. Sometimes, yes, but not all the time, uh, enjoying the books. Uh, great books are made to be shared. So we are very grateful, Kathy, that you get to share your stories with us, uh, past, present, and future. Uh, you mentioned uh, 45,000 words so far, a spinoff novel. Now, we can't promise that, but how, Kathy, are you building your community with any e-newsletter or uh, social media sites, uh, any other links uh, that listeners need to use in order to follow your work? I'm probably most active on Instagram, and that's uh, Kathy McCrum author. I do have a website and the newsletter link should be up. So you could contact me there if you want to just drop me a line. I I will respond to you if you send me a message on my website. I That's uh, com, And um, I have plans. But first I have to plan to get through book three. I'm on Facebook at uh, Kathy McCrum. Right now it's... it's it's fairly easy because there's only like three places. So making it simple, only three. Well, hopefully that shuttle piloted by your imaginary friends uh, has a little library office slash writing nook in the back, uh, which is insulated from any uh, gravity shaking. So catch a break there and we will look forward to catching up with you later uh, after book three. Godspeed to you, Kathy. Thanks. It was great to be here. Thanks, Kathy. Stephen, I love how Kathy talked about the root of dystopia being the idea of, well, that's just the way things are, and how dystopia really settles into the heart of every person that continues it forward. And so I, th I think it's a neat way of uh, exploring dystopia, not just a big system, but how it works on an individual functional level. And I would like to know from you, our listener, what are some other dystopias that have this sort of different angle to them. So you can send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'd like to go ahead and read some comments from our previous episode 137 about Brave New World in 1984, which are those more top-down kind of dystopias. On Instagram, at Chris Young writes, wrote to us and said, quote, I thought Huxley was closer to being right Hence the love collective, end quote. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I'm making a grimace face as I read this. Uh, you can't really see me, but oh man, we're, I've seen so many headlines like that recently, how polyamory or whatever is, is becoming a uh, commonplace. And it's shown up in some of my favorite stories, which I'm not uh, super thrilled about. Uh, we got another note here from Carol Carr, who commented on Facebook and said, Quote, they're both worse in different ways. I think 1984 is more likely to happen. Remember, its original title was 1948. It was so close then. End quote. Carol, that is a great point that Orwell wasn't looking that far in the future when he thought this would happen. He, he thought it was happening then. 
And man, how things have changed and, and gotten very, very close to this uh, fictional reality. And yes, I'm. Uh, if you listen to our last episode, you know that I am more privy to think that we are living in 1984. Stephen thinks we're closer to Brave New World. Yes, it is probably a fusion of either one, but I, I, you know, I think in all the tech terms, I'm, I'm very deep into all that and how technology is is being used to uh, enslave us all. So I, I side with you there, Carol, and thank you both for writing. And again, to you, our listener, we would love to hear your thoughts about dystopia about Kathy McCrum's novels or about just uh, humans turning into androids. And uh, is that, could that be a good thing uh, or would that always be a bad thing? So send us a note. There's at least one scripture that warns about humans who invent new ways of doing evil. I'm guessing that that's the dystopian doom that we're facing now. Not a ripoff of Brave New World, not a ripoff of 1984 or any other dystopian novel that warn us against these things and thereby make sure that we go, well, I'm not going to do that thing because that would be evil because the book told me to. Uh, Instead, uh, people like to crib uh, elements from worldviews, doom worldviews and otherwise and come up with their own new form of evil. So we're probably going to get a Brave New World 1984 hybrid sometime in the future and uh, hopefully preserve some of the common graces, uh, even in those terrible worlds, uh, at least traditional families continue in 1984, uh, and at least people feel kind of happy in Brave New World, so maybe that can continue, because God's common grace will continue in a world even if we get a dystopian doom going on, and hopefully Lorehaven as well can continue, even in the worst-case scenario. Uh, at Lorehaven, we are continuing our ongoing book quest in November through Andrew Peterson's fantasy novel, the first book of the Wingfeather Saga called On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. Not too late to join. Maybe if you got time over the upcoming Thanksgiving break, you can subscribe to lorehaven.com for free, get your exclusive guild invitation, and jump on into the book quest. Uh, Eli David has been running that quest, and you can catch up with his questions and enjoy uh, this darkly whimsical fantasy story that is coming to a streaming service near you at the Wingfeather Saga TV show. We timed this book quest to make sure we got ahead of that. I think the TV show actually starts in December. Has nothing to do with Lorehaven. Uh, we're just fans. Uh, we want to see the growth of Christian-made fantasy, and uh, lots of people love the Wingfeather saga. We're going to announce our next book quest in our next episode, uh, which is on the other side of our Thanksgiving break. Uh, the week of Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to take off for this podcast. Uh, we're not going to release a new episode on that Tuesday. And then we will return on Tuesday, November the 29th. But we're still doing some new articles. Uh, We're planning some new stuff coming out from our authors, Marion Jacobs and Josiah DeGraff, already in progress. So check lorehaven.com to see those at the top of the page if they've been released. Or if you've subscribed, you can get the notifications for either articles and or reviews and or new podcast episodes, uh, whatever you like best. Subscribe free at lorehaven.com. Our recent review is a middle grade science fiction book called Trouble at the CTC. We reviewed that at Lorehaven on this past Friday. Go to lorehaven.com and find that or see the link at our show notes. Next on Fantastical Truth, one week in advance, happy Thanksgiving Day, especially to, you know, those listeners who actually celebrate the thing. But everybody else is welcome to join in. I think it's a great American distinctive that we can take an occasion not just for sports ball and families and all that sort of thing, but to celebrate the gifts of God. That's what we're about at Fantastical Truth and Lorehaven is celebrating fiction and creativity and imagination and fantasy as God's gift. So thank God for that amazing, fantastical story you just enjoyed. We'll be thanking him as well, although not on the podcast this coming Tuesday. But when we return for that November 29 episode, 
we will bring in a whole other dystopian government for you to have fun rising up against to join the revolution. In a world ruled by 12 alliances, one young man has a chance to compete in the chase for a chance to pass exactly one law. But how can a newly freed people live under grace? Bradley Caffey, author of the Chase Runner series, explores those questions in this trilogy, and he will dash into the Lorehaven studio and help lead the resistance for our next episode. Meanwhile, don't act like an android. Even if someone is forcing you to, God has made you to be a human being. He has given us emotions. He has given us feelings. He has given us human relationships to fellowship together in a community. That is the purpose for which we are created. Not just a community or a church for its own sake, though, but a community that is made to glorify him forever. That is our purpose, that's our mission, and that is our reason for gratitude as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 